Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. As unaccustomed as I am to uh, public speaking, I don't think I can get started unless I introduce myself, as we always do in our AA meetings in Texas. I'm Esther, and I'm an alcoholic. And for following the program of AA to the best of my ability, I was dry 12 years yesterday. But I know this, that the only way that I can maintain my sobriety is to remember always what I was like 12 years ago this weekend. I am shaking like a leaf all over this morning. (laughs) But at least I know where I am and that if I continue to do daily what I have done in these last 12 years, I will stay sober till I die. I didn't know that when I came in. I knew that I wanted to try AA, but that it would work well, I didn't think anything would work. And I think that we have to do time in AA before we realize that it's going to work for us. I wish I could tell you how and why AA works. I don't know. I only know that it does. If you desire it with your whole heart and without reservation, I think that none of us come to AA until we've tried everything we can think of. I know that I had thought that if only I had found AA years before I did, that I would have saved myself so much of the shame and degradation of the last few years. But as I've grown in AA, I realized that a person with as much self-will as I had and as hard a head and as diseased an ego, that I had to try everything that I could think of and bump my head up against every stone wall before I was ready to come in. The only thing I have really encouraged to offer you is my own story and to tell you just what sort of a drunk I was. It's kind of hard seeing me up here sober and crazy and smiling to think that I was ever in the horrible shape that I was. Uh, you know, I came from a family where uh, alcohol was very socially accepted. I lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, there were cocktail lounges and ballrooms. It was just something that was served openly. I'm an Episcopalian, and we bless our sacraments with wine. I don't think, I can't remember a dinner at home that we didn't have white wine and claret on the table. There were not cocktails served when I was growing up. I think the family used to drink sherry every now and then, and we always had cordial after dinner, and I know my sister and my brother and I love creme de mint. It was like a snowball, you know, scraped ice with a green and little straw. So I was used to it, but I didn't know what the effect of alcohol was, because uh, I would have claret maybe with my dinner, but there was a lot of ice and about two tablespoons of claret with a little water and some sugar, and eating it with your meals you didn't feel. I think the first time, in fact, I know that I ever realized what alcohol would do for me was when I married. All my life, I didn't think that I was maladjusted, but I know now I was. In spite of coming from a home that was happy, uh, I had a very indulgent father and everything, 
I was an extremely sensitive person and so self-conscious that I just hurt all over all the time. And the night that I married, I had a big church wedding. And I couldn't enjoy anything. I know they were saying this present has come, and I had this girl from St. Louis down for my wedding. She was staying with me. I was just scared to death that my dress wasn't going to do right, that the church wasn't going to be filled, that I'd fall flat on my face walking up the aisle. In fact, I'm just frightened to death that I wasn't going to be a prima donna at the place that I should be a prima donna. And in those days of time, you know, I've been married 29 years. That's been before God. They didn't, you didn't carry a, a little orchid up the aisle. You carried these great big bouquets like a funeral phrase. <laughs> and you didn't have your picture taken until just before you went to the church. They're very kind brides now. I think they have the pictures taken two or three days ahead of time. Well, it's self-conscious about I have to be dressed about two or three hours before going to church and pose for these pictures, holding this huge, you know, I was saying, I would love for y'all to see those pictures sometimes. I just, well, I look like somebody's digging me in the back of the sword. Well, about the time we were going to go to church and they had finished, I really was in a terrific state. And my father looked at me, and he turned to the servants, right and said, Miss Esther is about to faint. Get her something to drink. Well, the servant he turned to was our old cook, and we had some waiters from the club there and all, and, and she was one of the guests at the wedding, you know, and she liked to drink. And uh, poor lady went in the kitchen, and she came back with a water glass, and it was half full of wine, and I drank it down. The church is just three blocks from the house. It was February, it was cold, and I got right into the car, and they drove me over, and as soon as I hit the church, they started the wedding. And baby, when I just uh, that whiskey went right through me. <laughs> Never have I felt so good. I walked up that aisle just like Mae West in her prime. <laughs> but I walked up and down, I wanted to do it over again. <laughs> I don't think that I was conscious of what had happened to me. I think I was very happy. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> but I think that it registered subconsciously. And do you know that that drink was wonderful for me? It was really medicinal that night. And it was on many occasions after that. I learned that it eased the situation socially. And it helped us fine. <laughs> but somewhere along the line, it backfired. And when I passed that line, I don't know, when something just went haywire and I got to depend on it so I could do nothing without it. I think that it was in about 1931 that my drinking first caused comment. And uh, yet, nobody was very perturbed about it, except my family. Because uh, I decided after seven years of marriage that I would divorce my husband. So, the night that I married, I must tell you, I was very hard-headed and quite a problem at home. And my mother told my husband... She says, thank goodness she's off my hands, but you sure have got your hands full. More than you really did. But anyhow, I decided to divorce him, and I did in July. It don't take a month to get one in Dallas, and I was in Dallas at the time. And I went on home. Well, I really was free, white, old 21, and I had a time. I put my poor mother and father through the agonies of the damned. And finally, I couldn't stand living with them 
washing everything I could do, and my husband was coming down, and I don't know, I had no feeling of security or anything else. It was a very asinine thing that I did when I did get the divorce, and finally I went back to Dallas and remarried. And we moved up to Tulsa, and that was when all the boys and Esther got drunk and the wives didn't, and they would talk about it. And that went on for about three years, and we moved back to Dallas. And then I started drinking. And Frank would come home day after day and finally passed out. Or he'd leave on a trip, and every time he came home, he passed out. So finally he said to me one morning, Esther, why do you do this? And uh, I said, well, I don't know why. But I've been reading a lot about psychiatry, and I thought, well, maybe if I talked to a psychiatrist, he could find out some male quirk and put me straight in, and then I could drink like a lady. So Frank said, well, if you'd like to talk to one, I will see uh, a doctor and find out who to go to here. So Frank left with my problem and uh, to get the doctor and all, so I got drunk. And when he came home, he had found a doctor that didn't want to take an alcoholic first. He didn't call me that. That uh, was because I was drinking too much. But that when he told the doctor that I want to talk to him, the doctor said, yeah. So I got drunker and drunker. And uh, then I woke up in a booby hat. You know, I had never been, never been on the inside of an insane asylum. And I had really thought I was going to a private hospital. And I woke up in this bare room with nothing around me but these bars. There were no cigarettes. They wouldn't let me smoke. And they just treated me, well, like I was nuts. But of course, I didn't think I was. I, don't, I know this. That right away, I got furious. And I would not even talk to the doctor in the place. I wanted to come home. They kept me there. Well, I was supposed to stay a month. But they only kept me there 17 days. I know that uh, I was terribly screwed up when I went in, but I came out much worse because I could not identify myself with the people that I was with, and uh, there was no understanding, and uh, I can't stay in confinement, and it was just all these things, and I had hysterics on the 17th day for the first and only time in my life, so they let me go home, and the doctor let me go home on one condition. Because I, he asked me if I would cooperate with him after I went home, and that if I would have a trained nurse stay with me for at least two weeks. So uh, all those conditions, regardless of the cost or anything else, I said yes. Well, I was so happy over getting home, and uh, I all changed just overnight. I was crazy about Dr. Hatchett. His name is Dr. Witt, and I've been calling him Dr. Hatchett. <laughs> so I know that I said for years after. This was in 1936 or 37 that I cooperated with that man 100%. And that is how I, how dishonest I was with myself. I know now that I answered all these questions and told him what I wanted to. And then I told him what I wanted to believe about myself. The questions he asked me that I didn't answer honestly, I thought were none of his damn business. And I could see no reason, or not a reason why they had any relation to this problem of getting drunk every now and then. So I know that it drove me further into this psychosis that I had, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I hated, uh, oh, deep down in my heart, I resented the fact that Frank had done this to me. 
And I just didn't know what way I was going. And life was pretty miserable. Well, about this time, Christmas, after I had been in uh, Dr. Wick's place, after six months of being on his care, we just decided that there wasn't anything more to do. Every time I got drunk, he'd send me to a nursing home. He had better sense than send me back to that hospital. I think I disrupted the hospital. But anyhow, uh, when we got back from Christmas, my husband had given me a cock bed who is my heart, and I think just as notorious in AA as I am now. <laughs> you know, when you get so bad and your dog won't have anything to do with you when you're drinking, it's pretty rough. But that's the way it got. Uh, and Frank had to go to New York. Well, because I had a dog, I just had a duplex, and I thought, if only we had a house. A duplex apartment isn't any place to raise a dog. So I went out to the Samaritan treatment. He even had the people come out there and tell me what kind of a room I was going to have, and that he could come see me, and that my dog could come see me, you know, all the things that I couldn't have when I was in the <coughs> So I took the Samaritan treatment. Well, uh, I guess there are plenty of other graduates in Samaritan treatment in here. There are no easy ways to sober up, without a doubt. So that's the most excruciating. It's the earth treatment. So I took that three times, and that didn't work. Then there was a, a minister at the church. He tried to help me. There was a doctor in the congregation that was pretty interested in me, and uh, he thought it was a vitamin deficiency. So I would go down to him for quite a few months, and have him ship me full of all this stuff, medical spilling. I'd go across the street to that little triangle drugstore, and I would take a glass of beer, two beers, then stop at the liquor store and get myself a pint and I got home and you know those vitamins just don't keep you sober. <laughs> so back. Finally, nineteen forty, we went down to Houston and my husband thought maybe a change of environment, a new town and everything else, I would be all right. We moved down in nineteen forty. And that year was my life. There was nothing else for us to try. We had tried everything. So the only thing that I could do would be call a doctor to help sober me up. I wouldn't go to hospitals because I wanted my dog there. And so I had to have a trained nurse. And the only time my dog had anything to do with me was when I had a hangover, you know, and I was so sick. And he'd come and he's the only one that wouldn't have anything to do with me. Well, I don't know. It was a, a tragic thing. I have told you some of the funny things, but not much of the shame and degradation. I, uh, fell down and knocked out my front teeth. I dropped a two-part water bottle on my big toe, and I didn't, couldn't walk, had in a cast, and the doctor left it on three weeks longer than he should because he never found me sober so he could take it off. He was afraid as soon as he took it off, I'd break it over again. I my dress called on fire by the bathroom here, and I didn't sit down three months. <laughs> and it was one thing after another. So finally one afternoon in April of 1941, I got as drunk as a skunk, and all of you that know me so well know that I do not walk straight sober. You should see me when I'm drunk. And I was as drunk as I could be. It was time for nappy's afternoon walk. I had on a pair of denim slacks, and out I go, weaving with the dogs. And a patrol car passed. And they must have seen what condition I was in. I mean, they could tell what condition I was in. And decided to take me home. But when they picked me up, I must have gotten kind of sassy and told them they couldn't do that to Mrs. Elizondi. Because 
they took my dog home and they brought me to jail. <laughs> well, as I said before, I don't like to be thin-skinned. Those bars. You don't get hotel service. No, I know they told my husband that they, when they took me home, there wasn't anyone there and I was in such terrible condition they didn't know what I would do to myself. And they realized it was no place for me. So for him to wait a while before he got me, because at that time when they called him to come over, honey, I was knocking a tin cup up against the wall. I wanted some cigarette service, of which I didn't get. So I was in just a few hours. But somewhere during that time, I remember going back on his bunk and just crying my eyes. Just, uh, I think that that is when I hit bar. I didn't think that I could ever be, I mean, I just know that I went completely haywire on the inside. And yet still, we have this defensive front. So many people say, oh, he doesn't want to sober up, or she doesn't want to sober up. Stop and think of your behavior. My husband couldn't tell that I wanted to do something about it by looking at me. I was as defiant as anybody could be because I was too scared. I didn't know which way to turn. So when he came by me, as I walked down this gate, I could see him through this, these bars, and he was signing something. And I looked at him, and I said, don't you sign anything in this place. You know, I was going to sue the city of Houston for what they did to a boy like myself. <laughs> but Frank turned around, and he looked at me, and he said, Esther, remember, you're in jail, not at home. And my friends, I never want anybody to look at me like that again with the contempt and everything else that was in his face and voice. I think I read more contempt there than was really there because just a week before, someone had sent him the Saturday Evening Post article on AA. And there was some glimmer in it of hope for him that there were, there was something maybe else that I could try. But he was frightened to death to give it to me because I resented everything he said and did. So he waited another week or two, and I don't think I stayed sober hardly at all. He was out of town, and I know he'd gotten in this one night, and I was drunk. And the next morning, he came into my room, and he said, Now, Esther, I'm not going to lecture you anymore, but he said, I want you to read this article. And he said, If you want to try this thing, I'll go along with you. But he said, If you don't, you will have to go home. He said, I cannot sit by and watch you destroy yourself anymore. So when he left, I thought, what is this crackpot thing? And I took two or three drinks so my eyes could focus. I don't see. And never will be able to see. And uh, I could see this horrible picture, this awful drunk. I don't know if any of you ever saw it. He couldn't get the drink through his mouth. He had a towel around his hand. He needed to shave. And I shut it when I looked at that. But from the very first paragraph on, something happened to me. I realized that there were other people in this world who behaved and acted like I did, and that I was a sick person, and I was suffering from an actual disease that had a name and symptoms, just like diabetes or TB. That I wasn't immoral, I wasn't mad, I wasn't vicious. And I don't know, it was just with a feeling of relief I wanted to know more about it. And with that, uh, I think for the first time came the realization 
that there was something horribly, horribly wrong with me. I think up to that time, I was so completely baffled by my behavior that I never stopped to think. And so as I said before, I, I don't know how or why AA worked. I know that it was the first meeting that ever reached me. And it reached me through this article. There was no one I could call uh, anything. I know that when Frank came home, I said, I want to try this thing. And he said, well, there's a post office box to write to in New York. <laughs> and it's been very thrilling uh, to share so much about our service office during this convention. Because I am here just because of the service office in New York. And it's always meant an awful lot to me, of course. We've grown so in the last 12 years that it's much bigger and a lot more different than it was then. But I wrote on a Saturday. In fact, I was shaking so I wanted my husband to write the letter, and he said no. He had gotten enough out of it. There was something that I had to do all by myself. So I wrote this letter in this very shaky handwriting, and in just one week, back came a letter with the literature from New York. They sent me just the regular little letter they send to everybody else. But along with it, Ruth Hart wrote a little note in longhand because she could read through the letter that it was written by me, that I really need help, and a personal touch, I think, was something. Well, that was on Saturday, and my husband was leaving town on Sunday night, and he said, uh, let's wait till I get back, and I will go with you to see this man. So Frank left town, and Monday morning, I had been sober that whole week while waiting to hear about AA. And I wanted to try AA with my whole heart and soul. And I had learned an awful lot about myself in that one little article. And Monday morning, I was just feeling like a million dollars went. All you need is a half a pint of white swan, see? So I got a half a pint of white swan. And at midnight that night, I called this number. And the man who started the group was in the hospital. And they didn't know what to do with me. They are afraid to send any of the men to see me, and there weren't any women. So they let me stay in my own youth. However, I stayed drunk from Monday till Friday. And I call that my spelling AA. I'm glad I had it then, because in spite of knowing that my drunkenness was a symptom of the things that were wrong with me, that's what the article told me, and that I could never drink again, I think I couldn't still yet fight giving it up, and I was going to try. And I never wanted to get that last drunk as long as I lived. It was one of the worst I ever had. It was the first time in my life that I could not get a lift out of what I was drinking. And so on Friday night, May 16th, five minutes to six, I had a half a water glass of white swan gin, and with it is when I asked God to help me. And I wish I could tell or what I think and feel about AA. But it's something that I have experienced and I could never, ever put into words. I know that I only have a daily reprieve, that I must work at this as long as I live, but I do know that it's only working at it that I will stay sober and live a happy life. And there are words of Dr. Bell, Bob's and Bill's that are with me all the time. You know, Dr. Bob says, love and service keep us dry. And Bill says, always we must remember that our first duty is face-to-face help to the alcoholic that still suffers. 
Dr. Bob tells us our program is simple and not to last it up. It was the last thing I ever heard him say. And I think there are some of us that at times try to read mysteries and complexities into the steps. But they're not bad. To me, AA is in the, within the reach of every alcoholic. It can be achieved in any walk of life. Because the achievement is not ours, but God's. And if there's anyone here for the first time, I would just like to leave you with the feeling that there is no situation too difficult, none too desperate, no unhappiness too great to be overcome in this great life-saving movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know how much I can say either before I get all choked up, but uh, Cole said one of the nicest things that I've heard in a long time when he said that all the boys here, or all the AAs here felt like I belonged to them when I came in and before I moved up to Dallas and how heartbroken they all were when I moved to Dallas and how lost. Because I know I felt I belonged to them much more than my husband. And I couldn't see what I was doing moving to Dallas. And I cried the whole way up. But it worked out a lot differently, we all know. Carl's been my sweet telling you all some of the same things that I told him in the beginning. But the day I remember Carl most was the first day he came to us. And Hal Newman got him out of the city jail and called me about 7 o'clock in the morning and said, well, that's to come down. I have a drunk lady to sit with all day. So I went down to the Rossonian and sat in Hal's room with a call. And I used to ask more questions. If Roy's in the room, he will vouch for that. Dig down and Gordon Sherwood and all of them said they never knew anyone that could ask the questions I could. And boy, I'd love to have a tape recording of that session with Carl. <laughs> me asking Carl questions and Carl asking me questions. I believe I got more out of talking to Carl than he got out of talking to me that day. I wish I could tell all of you all what I think and feel about AA. Of course, all I have to offer is my own story. But of course, you know, I am not physically able to do it. But I felt that if someone, my God, who have gotten what I have gotten out of AA, didn't get up on their feet and at least let you see what it can and has done for me, well, I'd be a mighty sorry person. But I wish for each in every AA in this room, what I have found in AA, it's indescribable. It's something you have to experience for yourself. And I know there are a lot of newcomers, and we always say they are the most important. But I loved Grapevine this month because it talked about how important the older person was. Because I need AA today just as badly as the one that's been in here just 24 hours. Thank you. I have done an alcoholic and through uh, following the program of AA to the best of my ability I have been dry since 1941 
Well, I was just sitting there, catching my breath, and listening to the last speaker, and talking about age and AA. And it wasn't since I had been in AA. I've got more screwball notions than all of y'all put together. But I've never gotten that screwball notion that I'm cured. <laughs> I know I'm as alcoholic today as I was the day I came in. And I might, I may try anything else, but by God, I'm, I never want to try to take a drink again. Whenever I get up in front of a bunch of AAs, I would always like to say something immortal. To let you all know in some manner, shape, or form, what it means to me. But it's an impossible thing, I think, that for any of us to realize what AA is, we have to experience it. We have to, as I say, do time in AA. I can tell any of you all how marvelous AA has been, and all, but it won't mean a damn thing to you if you haven't experienced it yourself. It's, uh, not a museum of accomplishments. No matter what I have done or how many years or months or weeks I have been sober, the only thing in the world that comes is what I do today. <laughs> it's a way of life that we have to live and practice. But the wonderful thing is that that is the only way we find any happiness. If it was uh, some way that, well, we graduate, what in the devil would we do? We couldn't have all this. Another thing that I thought today, I was having such a marvelous time last night and down the lobby, that uh, I know I'm getting old because usually I never lost my voice till after two days of it, but I can't talk right now. I'm just as hoarse as I can be. But it's wonderful not to have to drink to make other people interesting. You know how we have to do it. You, know? you always were with a bunch of boys until you had enough drinks to make them a little bit interesting. But seriously, I'm not going to say anything very much. I think it ought to be a successful speaker. Who is it saying that you should stand up so everybody could see you? And you should speak up so everybody could hear you? And then you should sit down so everybody likes you? <laughs> but I do want to just say this one thing that I think that they were. Well, of course, there were so many things that appealed to me when I came in. But the two main things that meant so much to me was that I found that there were other people who acted and behaved as I did, and I found out that I was sick. That uh, it wasn't just that I was weak-willed or immoral or rotten or anything else. It was because I was a sick person. That there were other people that acted like I was, and that my disease had symptoms just like any other disease. And I think that with that, I was able to look at myself and see like the, the weight of the world was lifted from my shoulders. Because I know that all of you will agree with me that alcoholism is the most lonely illness there is in the world. It cuts us off from everything and everybody. Thanks. I do that there's no graduation point because I don't so much bouquets just like a funeral spray. You know, I was married so many years ago, they didn't have these little tiny orchids in your hands. I had to hold this great big thing. And for two hours, I sat up and left the dogs to try to take my picture. 
Well, I was self-conscious and my face ached and my body ached me and I was about to sing. And just before I went to the uh, church, my father came and could see the condition that I was in. He asked one of the servants, he said, Miss Esther looks sick, will you bring her a drink? So Robert ran around kind of ruddy and he came back with a half a water glass of whiskey and down I drank. Well, the church was just about four blocks from the house. We got in the car. It was cold weather. And we were at the church in no time. And I hit this long church. It was hot and bad. The alcohol started taking effect. And I threw up that aisle just like Mae West in her prime. Well, I know that consciously I didn't realize what had happened. But subconsciously it registered. Well, why didn't I know about this before? It just eased the whole situation from So after that, every time I went in place, I wanted a drink or two. And for quite a few years, I held it just beautiful. And when I passed the line from social into pathological drinking, I do not know. But I know even long before I passed that line that I was leaning on alcohol for something they didn't do for a normal person. So I knew it was about 1932 that my drinking started causing comments, if you know what I mean. All the men and Esther got too much to drink. And he finally Esther got more than the men got to drink. And I thought it was because I was going with a rather cool crowd. And I never did think that it was myself. Well, we were in Charles at the time. We moved back to Dallas in 1935. And it took me a while to sort of readjust myself and keep up old friends. And I was spending a lot of time at Rome and drinking alone. And so finally, my husband couldn't stand much more of it. And one morning he said, After why do you drink as much as you do? He had come home the night before and I had been tired up. And I said, well, I don't know why. I think all of us wanted to know why, why, why we drink. Well, he said, uh, would you like to see a doctor about it? Well, I had been reading a lot of that psychiatry, and I thought, well, that would be swell. That's what I would like to do. So finally said, well, I'll find out who to go see. So off he went with my alcoholic problem, so I got drunk. And then when he came home, he told me that he had seen the psychiatrist, and it's the God who wanted me to go to his prior hospital and um, be under observation for a week or two. And when I like that, yes, I would like that. So I, I went. Well, of course, we always get drunk on the way to cure. So I was drunk when I got to the private hospital. And so I didn't know I was in the private hospital. So I came out of my drunken stupor. I had never known what a psychopathic hospital was till I awakened in one. And I have never in all of my life experienced anything like that. Well, of course, the guy just got nowhere with me. I gave him the body and the money, and he did nothing for it. So I just figured that the party didn't work. The year after that, my husband had to go to New York, and I just got a dog, and I was a new house. I thought I shouldn't keep a dog in the apartment. Well, friend said, I cannot go to New York and leave you in, in a house. I don't know what will happen. He said, I'll get the house for you if your father will come stay with you while I'm in New York. 
So, my father came to stay with me. I got a new house, a new fur coat. I have my new dog. And my daddy came, and I loved my daddy. And everything was going to be swell. And Frank went to New York, and I got drunk. So, my father told me in the cage, and I looked at you. Well, that is smart. You know, the earth's treatment. There's no easy way to get sober, but that's the most excruciating. Well, I won't go into those details. I went to that three times, and that didn't work. And then finally, my minister tried to work with me. Well, I know that the doctor, the psychiatrist, was looking on me as a crazy patient. I know that when I was in there with these other nuts, I couldn't identify myself with them. And when my minister was very nice and very sweet to me. I felt that all along he was looking down his nose at me, that he didn't understand, which he didn't. And finally in 1940, we moved down to Houston. By that time, we had just worn out everybody. I had worn out more doctors coming for hangovers. When we got down to Houston, there was nothing else to do uh, except get a doctor and a hospital nurse in sold me up. Well, I did one thing after another. I fell out of bed, not my two front teeth. Wait. I caught my dress on fire and I didn't sit down for three months. I got the two-port water bottle on my big toe and had compound fracture. The doctor had to leave the cast on six weeks longer than usual. So he never found me sober enough to take it off. He was afraid to take it off. I was It was one thing after another. And finally, one afternoon, about three or four o'clock, I was taking my dog for a walk. I was just as drunk as I could be. And all of you who know me know that I do not walk straight forward, which you can see me when I am drunk. So I was leading down the street in Houston when a cruising car passed. So they chased me out of the clear condition I was in with my dog, and I guess they were going to take me home. But I must have gotten kind of snotty and said, you can't do this, Mrs. Elizabeth, because they took the dog home, and they took me to jail. For <laughs> so, the second time in my life, I had paws around me. And don't fence me in ever again. <laughs> but you know, we got hotel service in those places. I didn't have my cigarettes with me. I had nothing but a pair of German slots on. So I started being this pink cup. I wanted to get her to come and bring me some cigarettes and a few other things. And I beat that cup. It was about that time that my husband arrived. Well, they had called him, and he was. Himself. He didn't know what I was in. He thought that I had been picked up for drunken driving. I think he was vastly relieved when he found out it was just a plain drunk charge. So when he got there, I was going through the feeding of the tin cup business. So they told him they didn't think it was any place for me. I didn't know that, though. And they told him to come back to me later. The place for him would be good for me to cool off for a couple of hours. When he came back and got me, about seven, I guess it was, and it's a girl, you see, along the corridor, and they had this jail, this large gate. As he was opening that gate, 
My husband had paid the fine and was fining something at this uh, window. And I looked over him and I said, don't you find anything in this place? I was going to see that city, you know, for painting any day. And he came around and he looked at me and he said, Essence, remember you're in jail, not at home. And I tell you, I never want anyone to look at me like that again. It was shortly after that, just about a week, that Frank handed me the Saturday Evening Post article on alcohol phenomenon. It was in the March 1st issue of 1941. He had had it for a couple of months. He was frightened enough to give it to me, because everything he seemed to do, I resented. But he gave it to me at the right time. He gave, I had not stayed sober at all after I got out of jail. I could not live with myself. I was consumed with fear. Every time the doorbell rang, the phone rang, I just didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. So one morning before he left, he came in my room and he said, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to do anything, but I want you to read this article. He said, if you, after reading this, if you want to try this method, he said, I am willing to go along with you. He said, if you don't, you will have to go back home. He said, I cannot sit by and watch you destroy yourself any longer. So when he left, I was, uh, oh, if I fail my eyes, I don't see good. I need to see an eye go sober and drunk. My eyes won't focus. So I had to take it. I had to take a few drinks, and I read what Ellie had to say with the most marvelous feeling of relief. I found out that I was a sick person. I wasn't mad or vicious. I was suffering from an actual disease that had a name symptom, just like diabetes or TB. And when I found that out, I could accept myself in that life. I could never identify myself as a crazy person in the psychopathic hospital or the criminal in jail. But I was sick and I felt sick. And with that came a strong desire and a willingness to do something about myself. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.